unpacking together some of Jesus' final words on earth, words that he saved for his closest friends, words that were meant to prepare them to handle joy and sorrow in his absence. He knew he was going to the cross. He knew he was only going to be with them for a little bit longer. He knew that his leaving them was going to be catastrophic for them. And so he prepared them. And he used these words to do it. And in these words, we get insight into what it means for us to follow Jesus too. Even 2,000 years later, what his friends needed then, on the night he was betrayed, on the night that he would be killed, is exactly what we need now to hold on in faith and to grow and thrive until he comes again. And what Jesus promises his friends in the text we're going to unpack this morning is what every one of us needs. And that is a source of power that brings real change into real lives. What Jesus says to his friends today leaves us with a clear and unmistakable impression. That is the impression that to follow Jesus means radical change to your life. There is no following, in Je- following Jesus and maintaining the status quo. What Jesus demands from us, what he promises us will happen to us, is a hard pill to swallow for someone who is comfortable. But it is life and joy and peace to those of us who know that we need to change, but know that we can't change by ourselves. What I want you to hear this morning is that there is no sin pattern so great, there is no trauma you have experienced that is so disastrous that Jesus cannot redeem you from it, that Jesus cannot set you on a new course despite it, that Jesus cannot lift you up into his very presence through the struggle, the trauma, the suffering. This passage this morning is that promise to us. We want to understand it. Now the problem is, it's a hard passage to understand. It's, it's got a lot of different moving pieces. And what you're going to see when we read through it here in a minute is that there's a lot of threads. It's, it's woven like uh, an Afghan blanket, you know? You've got lots of different colors going in and, in, in and amongst each other. And Jesus isn't talking to them in the sort of logic that a lot of us prefer. You know, point one, point two, point three, therefore point four. You know, that's what I want. Give it to me like that. Jesus doesn't go there here. He's, he's weaving his themes in, in amongst each other because they're all interconnected. And that means for us is we've got to try to pull them apart so we can understand what he wants us to get out of this this morning. And there's more here than we can do that on. So what I want to do is focus in on a couple of the central themes. And I want you to see as we read and then as we unpack it, that the the power for change that Jesus is describing here is all about love. Love is all through it. What we love, who loves us, what our love does to us. We're going to track this love theme throughout the passage together beginning by reading it. I'm going to read from verse 12 to verse 31. And I'm going to ask you, before I do that, to please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read it together. This is the word of the Lord. There is life in these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. 
you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Surely you notice what I mentioned before. There is a lot going on in this passage. There's a couple of tricky things. Things like, what does it mean that the Father is greater than Jesus and fact that he's already said that they are one earlier in this book. How are we supposed to understand how they work together? What does it mean that if we ask anything in Jesus' name, we'll do it? What does it mean that it's his name we're supposed to ask in? Does he really mean anything? You know, if, I, if I'd like to have a you know, couple million dollars in my bank account and ask him for that in his name, should I expect it? There's a lot of these, there's, those, are, those are two of the most troubling details, the most confusing details. There's more. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you right now, we're not going to have time to get there. We're not going to have time to get there partly because the central themes in this passage are so meaty, so weighty, so crucial to what Jesus wants to say that we ought to spend our time there. I've got things to say about these other parts that we've just read that that might have raised questions for you. I would love the chance to talk to you about those. So please come and talk to me after the service. They shoot me an email. Um, There are things to be said. There are books to be read. Love to tell you what those are and, and talk it out with you. For today, I want to focus on this love theme. Surely you noticed how often Jesus talks about love. I want to, I'm going to talk about the theme of love, and I want to talk about the promise of a helper, of the Spirit who he says will come, and how love and obedience is connected for Jesus and for us with the coming of this person who will be with us and for us, who will help us in the way that Jesus did. We want to understand how all this is interconnected. I want, to, I want to take three steps this morning. Understand the connection between love and obedience first. Then we want to talk about the connection between 
love and the Spirit of God. And then finally, the connection between love and grace. Love and obedience, love and the Spirit, love and grace. Let's start with love and obedience. It's the first connection we've got to make. It's the one that comes up most often in the passage that I read. It's the one where we're going to spend most of our time. All right, so when, when I'm just now wrapping up uh, point number one, and there's like five minutes left before you know you've got to go pick up your kids, don't freak out. It's all planned, all right? That's, that's what I'm attending. We're going to spend most of our time here. It's a, it's a huge connection for Jesus. He, he insists that his followers understand it, and it runs throughout the rest of what he says, and it runs throughout the rest of what other people following Jesus wrote about what the Christian life means, this intimate connection between what we love and how we behave. We want to understand it better this morning. Jesus has just talked about love already. I mean, really throughout the book, but even in John 13, he was especially focused on love. There he was talking, though, about, about his love for his friends, about his love for them that, that led him even to wash their feet, about a love that was leading him to his showdown with the ruler of this world, to the giving of his own life for his friends. And then he talked about not just his love for his friends, but his friends' love for each other, calling him to love as he had loved them. He's talked about love a good bit. But here in John 15, or John 14, excuse me, here in John 14 is the first time that we see Jesus talking about our love for him. He insists that if we love him, we will obey him. And the point we want to emphasize this morning is that true and lasting change in our lives, true and lasting change in our lives only comes when we love Jesus. Now, let me show you how he gets there. Notice how often and consistently he makes this connection. Look first at verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Simple enough. That line sort of hangs as a thesis for the rest of what comes. He goes back to it over and over. Let's look at the next one. Verse 21. It says it a little bit differently. Same point though. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Then again in verses 23 and 24. Judas has just asked him for clarification on one of these confusing statements Jesus has made about how he's going to show himself to his disciples. He's going to go, but he's going to come. He's going to show himself, but he's going to be gone. The world can't see, them. They, the, the world can't see him, but they will be able to see him. Judas wants clarification, and Jesus redirects. Verse 23, he doesn't answer the question, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? What he, what he does is takes him back to what he really wants to talk about. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. Verse 24 puts the same point in negative terms. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. Love equals obedience. Lack of love equals disobedience. Obedience points us to love. Disobedience points us to a lack of love. That's the connection Jesus is making over and over. I don't don't know that he could be any more clear than what he has been. Love here is more than just a feeling. Love here and throughout the Bible is is a word that's used for a deep-seated, action-oriented affection, for an impulse that drives us towards something, that controls how we behave, how we react, what we seek, what we want. Love is a kind of preference. It's a kind of priority. It's what Jesus meant earlier in chapter 3, an earlier time he talks about love. There he was talking about people who love the darkness more than the light. 
when he as the light comes into the world, they want to stay in the darkness because their deeds were evil. They didn't want to give up what they really loved. He's talking about preference, a priority there that's guiding how they behave. Same thing just in chapter 12, a couple chapters earlier. He talked about those who reject him because they loved the praise of men more than they loved the glory of God. What does that mean? They preferred the praise of men. They were oriented towards the praise of men. The praise of men guided them, not the praise of God. Love is an affection that guides preference, action, behavior. What you love, what you prefer, what you desire, what you delight in, that's what you'll do. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. Now listen, there are, there are surely many complicated factors that influence our behavior that cause us to struggle more in some ways than in others. Not everybody has the same experiences in their background. Not everybody has the same struggles now. Sin is complicated. Sometimes the deck really is stacked against us. Factors like genetics can predispose you towards certain sin struggles, towards certain addictions that other people won't struggle with. Trauma in your past can make some things much harder for you than it would be for other people. Cultural location gives us some vulnerabilities that others wouldn't have. I'm not saying that your pornography addiction isn't influenced by the fact that you're in a dorm room by yourself with internet access for hours and hours on end. There's a cultural location here that affects what's hard for us. The fact that we grow up in America versus Indonesia makes us predisposed towards some things and not others. Not saying that the roots of sin, that the, the struggles that we have aren't complicated. They are. But don't let these complications allow you to dodge the crystal clarity with which Jesus speaks here. Jesus says something that is always true, no matter what else might be in play. What is always true, no matter what else is going on, is that genuine, persistent, Christ-honoring obedience comes from love. And disobedience comes from a lack of love. Or even better, a misplaced love. A love not centered on Christ, but on something else. Whatever else may be true, if you love me, you'll keep my words. If you're not keeping my words, it's because you don't love me. The roots are what matter. And no lasting change can ever come for anyone that doesn't address the roots of all of our problems. A couple weeks ago, uh, my wife was out in this section of our yard that's under a huge maple tree. And so grass won't grow under there. Most ground spreads won't grow under there. Most flowers won't grow under there. So whoever had this place before us had just sort of turned it into a 
a, a grassless garden for a few different plants that could do without shade. The problem is that there's a bunch of these little plants that look like lily pads, kind of. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know what kind of weed this is. It looks like a very small lily pad. It pops up all over our yard, and it grows really well underneath a shady maple tree. So it's, our, our, this whole area was just covered in them. And so uh, we wanted to get rid of them. She wanted to get rid of them. So she goes out there and spends a couple of hours. Now, the last time we got rid of them, we were down on hands and knees pulling them out, every, every little one. They still came back. So this time she was like, well, forget it. I'm not doing that. I'm just going to take the quick fix. She takes the hoe out there, right, and just chops at them. And then rakes what she's chopped, and it looks great. Now what she knew, what we knew, was that it was going to look great for maybe a week. We had maybe a week. But it looked great for a little while, right? And what happened? It wasn't even a week. It was like two days later. And those lily pads, whatever they're called, they're back. All over that entire area. Because what had happened? She cut them off at the, at the visibility, the level of visibility. The roots are still there. No lasting change. Garden still looks awful. How many of our efforts to get clean, to get better, are taking a hoe to a problem that two fingers are required for? We're whitewashing the outside of a cup when the, dirty stay, the, the inside stays dirty. That was Jesus' image in another place. The Pharisees and their approach to righteousness. They cared about it if people could see it. Didn't care so much what was going on on the inside. Jesus would say to them and to us, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. What are his commands? What's he talking about? John doesn't have many ethical commands. There's not a whole lot of do's and don'ts. Some of that comes out in some of Jesus' other teachings and other gospels, but John is focused more on commands like abide in me, believe in me, receive me, love me. Ask whatever you wish of me. Believe in the light. Get up, crippled man. See, blind man. Rise from the dead, Lazarus. These are his commands. But there is one. There is one ethical command that he gives. He's just given it. He's just given it in chapter 13. What is it? Love one another as I have loved you. Servant is not greater than his master. Your master just washed your feet. Love one another as I have loved you. Have you ever thought, friends, have you ever thought that how we relate to one another is a reflection on how we relate to Jesus? When Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, he's talking about John 13. If you love me, you'll love one another. If you love me, you'll love what I love. And I love all of you. If you love me, you'll catch my love as your love. It'll rub off on you. Our love for each other is one of the best ways that we show we love him. Put differently, in another place of John's writings, John, in 1 John, his first letter to early Christians, he wrote a lot about love and its connection to our, to our love for Jesus and its connection to our love for each other. And that 
love for each other and its connection to our showing who we really are, our true colors, our true identity. In 1 John 4, he says, how can you say you love God when you don't love your brother? How, if you, how can you love God who you haven't seen, he says, when you don't love your brother who you have seen? Have you ever thought about the problems we have loving each other being problems of love for Jesus? That your lack of love or struggle to love others is a lack of love for Jesus? Verse 24 landed on me hard this week. I don't know why. I mean, it's probably going to sound really obvious to you guys. There's something about the phrasing of verse 24 that just hit me like a punch in the gut. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And I thought to myself, as soon as I read that, that's me. I don't keep his words. I'm among the whoever. When he says, whoever does not love me, he's talking about me. What is the sin struggle that you go back to, the pattern that you don't think you can shake? Is he talking about you here? Do you love him? Have you ever thought about it this way? Think about it this way. Think about whatever your, your pattern is. Let me give you a few examples. Could you say, I keep getting angry when people get in my way or let me down because I don't love Jesus. I keep looking at pornography because I don't love Jesus. I shade the truth to protect my reputation because I don't love Jesus. I'm not able to forgive because I don't love Jesus. I'm not willing to serve that person whose needs are wearing me out because I don't love Jesus. I can't abide in him consistently. I can't enjoy his word or pray to him because I don't love him. One effect of genuine love in a relationship is that we take on the loves of those that we love. We love to see them pleased. We love to be like them. We love to join with them in what matters to them. We rejoice when they rejoice. So ask yourself, in your struggle, whatever it is, do you really love Jesus? Do you really desire him? Would you really want to be free of whatever it is that you keep going back to? If you could imagine your life in five years not including that thing, would you want that life? Could it be that you love what it is you get from what you struggle with? Underneath it all, you love it more than you love Jesus. That's the question we've got to confront. But asking that question, even answering that question, doesn't get us nearly far enough. We have to know what are we supposed to do with the answer. So let's say your answer is, in all honesty, I see it. I get it. I don't love Jesus the way that I should. Let me say that you're on your way to recovery, right? Because the first step is removing, shattering all notions that you can get clean, that you can get better short of renovating what it is you love. There is no program for you. You've got to love Jesus more. 
It is that simple. For all the complicated roots, ultimately there is no recovery that doesn't come with deeper love for Jesus. Well, let's say you got there. You've taken that step towards recovery. What do I do now? Where do I get this love for Jesus? I try to pray to him. I'm in a small group. I read the Bible when I can. Don't seem to get much out of it. What am I supposed to do? Where does this transforming love come from? Well, I want to say, first of all, that reading his word and engaging with his people and praying to him, even when it doesn't feel good, is a healthy step towards recovery, even when you're not getting anything out of it. Love for Jesus comes in the same way that love for any other person in any other relationship comes. It comes by engaging him. You've got to go to him. You've got to give him time. You've got to remove the conditions upon which he has to deliver or else you're out of there. You've got to just be with him, abide in him until something changes. So don't give up what you're doing just because it hasn't worked yet. He promises to work by his word through his people and he promises to hear us when we ask of him things in his name, anything in his name. The reality is that we cannot worship Jesus and disobey Jesus at the same time. So wherever you're struggling, what you need to learn is a new instinct. To as, as that struggle creeps in on you, as you feel yourself tempted to do that thing again, that that should become a trigger for you to worship Jesus somehow. To get into his word, to pray to him, to think on his beauty, to think on the sweetness of his promises to you and the promise that he can satisfy you in the way nothing else can and try to worship him in that moment because it's incompatible with your sin pattern. To worship him is to be free in that moment from whatever it is that you can't shake. Fight for worship. But, but friends, the, the bottom line here is not just go out and try harder. You just got to read more. You just got to pray with more intensity. Your problem is you. There's a sense in which it is, but the problem that's in you is not a solvable problem by you. And this passage doesn't expect it to be. The beauty in this passage is more than just a diagnosis of our problem as a defective love for Jesus. Its promise is a renovating power that imparts to us love for Jesus. A love that we can't muster on our own. And I want to show you that in the way that Jesus talks about the Spirit, the helper who he's going to send in his name. We've seen love as the key to obedience, the key to change that's going to leave us more fully believing in Jesus and abiding in him and communicating with him and doing the works that he did and even greater works than these. We know ourselves. We know our limitations. We know our selfishness. We know what threatens us from the outside. And therefore, this challenge to love Jesus more could cause us to despair. Except that he promises to give us what he demands of us. He promises to give us what he expects from us. Look in the context. Jesus is talking about his going away. But far from a bad thing, Jesus says that him going away is a good thing. You need for me to go away so that you can get better. It's counterintuitive, but that's what he says. He says it in verse 12. He says, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. What? The works that Jesus is doing? Even greater works he'll do, he says, because I'm going to the Father. 
the key to you doing even greater works than Jesus is that Jesus is going away. And when he goes, you're going to get some power you didn't have before. Power to bear witness to him like he's been bearing witness to himself. Power to represent his kingdom and its expansion on earth in a way that he was doing when he was here. You're going to get tapped into a power source because he's leaving. Verses 16 and 17 then I think help us understand a bit more about what it means. He promises in these verses that when he goes, what he's going to ask is that the Father will send the Spirit. The Father will send another helper. You notice how verse 11, or verse, excuse me, verse 12 and 13 is about Jesus going away, you getting power to do even greater works than me, and, and I'm going to be there at the Father's right hand so that what you need I can ask for and then give you. And then verses 16 and 17, I think, is him saying, here's what I'm going to ask for. I'm going to go ahead and take the suspense out of it. What I'm going to do when I get up there is I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send you another helper. He's going to send you the spirit of truth. The world won't see this spirit. They won't believe, in, they won't believe you when they tell you that he's powerful. They will hear the promise of his power and say, that's just people wishful. That's just wishful thinking. There's no power there for change. I can't see it. But he's there. You'll know him. He'll be in you. Then verse 26 picks up the same theme. But the helper, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things. He'll bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Even though they won't have Jesus, in other words, they'll have someone to remind them of what he said. They'll have someone to get what he said into their hearts. It's this promise that comes after his emphasis on love and obedience. And just before he promises to give his peace, verse, seven, or excuse me, verse 27, he's talking about this peace that he's going to give them. Not a peace like the world's. Not a peace that's going to go away when the circumstances shift. I'm going to give you my peace, a rock-solid, life-building peace. So right between his connection to love and obedience and his promise to give an unshakable peace that's not like what the world can give, he promises to give the helper. The helper's the key. He is the one, through his work, that imparts these promises to us. So, we need to understand why Jesus' going and the Spirit's coming is such good news. And I want to unpack that in three really quick steps. Some of these steps are going to raise more questions than they may answer. Let me say again, I love to talk to you about the mystery of the Trinity and the promise of God's Spirit and how that spirit can tap you in to a power source that can change your life. I want to point the way there in what time we've got this morning, and then continue it as you're interested. Here are the three steps I want to take. First, one thing we need to notice about this spirit that he's promising is that he's a person. He's not some sort of vague life force, not some sort of energy out there that will make you feel different. He's a person. He's described in verse 16 as another helper. He's like Jesus. That's why he's another one. First the Father sent me to you. Now when I go, he's going to send another person like me to you, who I'm calling the helper, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. In verse 16 alone, friends, we are taken into the mystery of the Trinity that Christians have been latching onto for their hope for 2,000 years. None of us has ever fully understood it. None of us will ever be saved without it. It's all in verse 16. I, Jesus, will ask the Father, 
and he'll give you another helper. There's three people, three persons, all unified in their aiming of themselves at caring for Christ's own. Our salvation won't stand without what each one of them brings to us in all of their unity and their diversity. We can't understand everything, but we can understand that. That's what Jesus means for us to see. We need him. Here's the second step. This person, this spirit that's called the Holy Spirit in verse 26, is a helper. That's how it's translated in my version. You might get comforter. Yours might have counselor. It might have advocate. I think there may be even a version or two out there that just transliterates the Greek word and calls him the paraclete. That's the Greek word for it. Honestly, several of the commentaries that I read, they prefer paraclete because none of these other English words get it. It's a, it's a word that has so many layers to it that a word like helper just can't get you there. Neither can the others. Comforter sounds more like a thick blanket or like a, a funeral guest, right? That doesn't communicate quite as well as we need it to. Counselor sounds more like a staffer at a camp or someone who helps with marriages than what Jesus means here. Advocate's a little better. In some places, this word actually is pretty straight on to what we mean by an advocate in the legal sense of that word, like a a lawyer or an attorney as an advocate for a client. Same word gets used for Jesus in one of John's letters where where John talks about the advocate that we have with the Father. He represents us. He stands for us. When God looks at us, what he sees is an advocate positioned between us and him who stands for us. So we are as good as our advocate in that moment. He speaks for us. He acts for us. He is us before the Father. That's not exactly what Jesus is talking about here. That's not exactly how the Spirit helps us, though it helped, that, 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 that's part of it. Helper is okay, but it's not very specific. That's why a lot of people just go with paraclete. And you're to be excused if you want to leave from here calling the Holy Spirit the paraclete. I think that works. All I want to say here in the second step is that his role in this one word that's so beautiful and multi-layered is as broad and diverse as we need him to be. We may not understand all the ways in which he helps us, but he helps us in every way we need him to be. He is an advocate who represents us, who convicts and persuades us. He is a comforter who comes to us in our need and our distress and speaks peace. He is a counselor who helps to guide our steps. He is a helper who does for us and in us what we can't do for ourselves. And here's the third step, and this is the most important one. This person who has come to help us in all of these diverse ways that we can't even fully unpack. He comes as the fulfillment of a promise. and This is the key, all right? In light of the love and obedience connection we've already been making, I want you to see how the promise of this spirit connects to an earlier promise made by one of the prophets. And if we see the promise of the helper, the Holy Spirit, in light of this earlier promise of one of the prophets, we'll see that what Jesus is promising here is that he's going to do for us what he demands of us. He calls us to love. He's going to give us love by his Spirit. The point we've been making is that to really obey Jesus, to really hear him and believe in him so that it affects every part of our lives, we need to love him. Our problems are fundamentally at root affection problems. 
But we know from experience we cannot heal our own hearts. So Jesus promises us a helper, a spirit of truth who will help us to see the difference between things that will let us down and what will truly satisfy us. Someone who will work by Jesus' word, verse 26 says, to attach us to what Jesus said, to bring it to our minds and our hearts so that we are latched onto it, so that we're confident in it. He will persuade us and convict us and stir us up in our desire for truth over lies and obedience over rebellion. And this is precisely what God promised to do for his children in the prophet Ezekiel. What I want you to do quickly, if you have your Bible... I want you to flip over to the Old Testament. I want you to flip to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. I want to read quickly from verses 25 to 29. And when I read this, I want you to be thinking about what Jesus said about obedience. That life-altering obedience comes when we love Jesus. And disobedience that we can't shake comes from the fact that we don't love Jesus. So what are we supposed to do? Here's what he will do. Verse 25 of Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. It's a promise of renovation. He is going to make us better. And I will give you a new heart, a new affection center, a new place in which love dwells and from which love orients everything else about our lives, the command center for who we are, what we do, what we seek, what we desire, I'm going to give you a new one and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, that heart of stone that just isn't shaken by anything, that heart of stone that doesn't have the living, beating, pulsating power to change what you love, that heart of stone that is stuck. I'm going to give you a new one. I'm going to take the heart of stone out, he says, and from, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And, here we go, verse 27, I will put my spirit within you. You haven't been able to obey me. You've been disobeying me at every turn. So you know what? I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you will be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. Now think about what Jesus has just said. Obedience, change in your life, comes from love, from affection, from what your heart wants. We all know we don't have the power to change our hearts. What are we going to do? How are we ever going to find change? Then Jesus says, I'm going to the Father so that I can send you another helper. And that helper, he's the key. That's how you will obey me from your love for me. I've got to go to the Father first. But when I go, I will not leave you as orphans. You are not on your own. I will come to you in my spirit. I think that's what he's promising us. I think it's one of the most beautiful, practical takeaways from this passage. That we have to pray for the work of God's spirit. He is powerful and apart from him we have nothing. And yet we hope. No one is past his ability to save. You, in your struggle this morning, are not past saving. I don't care how many times you have been defeated by what it is you have learned 
is too powerful for you. This is a new day. His mercies are new in it. And, his ch- and chief among his mercies is his gift through his son of himself. His spirit that can change you and make you new. And it's a promise to your friends as well. There is no one in your life that you are working with right now who Jesus can't change. I know what it is to be frustrated by your inability to save somebody, to bring change to those that you love. But friends, it is, it is beyond our power, but it is not in our responsibility to change the ones we love. And if they have God's Spirit in them, then they have a change agent that is always at work, even when we're not in front of them, even when our words fall short of what they need to be convinced, even when we have no weapon in our arsenal that does any good against what they're facing. His Spirit is in them. They are changeable. So we pray to Him. We pray to Him to do His work in them. Because with this Spirit, there is no bondage that won't be broken and no blindness that won't be revealed to them. Here's the last thing I want to say. I want to comfort you with the connection between love and grace. Because one of the tricky things in this passage that we aren't spending time on this morning, but I want to at least point you to, is a couple of places where it sounds like Jesus is saying that if we want the Father to love us, we first have to love Him. Did you see these places? Look at verse 21. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will show myself to him. What? We've got to get love for him before he'll love us? Verse 23. If anyone loves me, my Father will love him, and we will come to him. On the surface, it sounds like what he's saying is that it's a, a, an exchange of goods and services for the right source of revenue, Right? That we offer him our love and he gives us what we need in exchange. As if we have to earn his affection. But I don't believe that's true for a couple of reasons. One is what we've seen already in this book. What we've seen is that God's love for the world is what sent Jesus to them. John 3, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. World for John is the realm that rebels against God. It's the realm of darkness. It's not the bigness of the world or the diversity of the world. It's the darkness of the world that he means. God loved that darkness. He loved his enemies, and that's why he came. His love starts the ball rolling. John says the same thing in his, in his first letter. Our love is because he first loved us, John tells us there. But his love does work on both sides. He starts his love towards us, but our love for him fuels it. Just like a parent who starts out with love for their children, but sees that love deepened by their children's obedience, by their children's affections for what's good and right and true and beautiful. That, get, that, that stirs our love for our children, a love that was already there. Same thing happens with God. It's not an exchange. And I think one of the most, one of the most clear statements that that's not how we're to read those, those claims about us loving and God loving us in a response, that we're not supposed to read it as a we have to earn his affection, is in a little clue that I just want to leave you with to think about. Another clue from Jesus about what's about to happen, about what he came for, what he's about to do, starting this very night. That clue comes out in verse 30 and 31. Verses 30 and 31 point to his death. Verse 30 and 31 help us understand why it is he's got to go to the Father 
He's got to leave them before he can really come to them. He's got to leave them in his death before he can come within them by his spirit. They aren't clean. They aren't ready. Someone has got to make them clean like Ezekiel promised before they can be a fit place for God to dwell in them. So how does that happen? I will no longer talk much with you, Jesus says, for the ruler of this world is coming. He's coming for me. He's coming to put me to death. He's the one who put it into Judas a couple chapters earlier to go and betray Jesus. Now he's coming. But what the ruler of this world doesn't know, what Jesus knows is that he, Jesus, is actually coming for the ruler of this world, not the other way around. He has no claim on me, Jesus says. I go to him because the Father commanded me. That's why I'm doing it. I'm doing it to fulfill the thing the Father planned to do, which is to make you holy. By my death, you become clean. By my death, because I go from you, because I go to the ruler of this world to wipe away whatever claim he has on you, therefore, I can ask the Father and he will send his spirit. We won't leave you as orphans. We will come to you. We will make our home with you because of me, because of where I go on this night. Father, the Father's love comes to us. It isn't an exchange for something we've offered to him. It is a gift that he gives to us in grace and with his love. He gives to us everything we need to love him in return, to love him with a love that makes us new. That's the promise of this passage. And our only recourse in this promise is to pray it into reality. We pray to him to do what he's promised to do. Father, you have not left anything that we need unpromised to us Now we ask that you would make good on these promises. What we need, we know, is hearts that love you more than the things of this world that woo us and distract us and always let us down. So Father, by your Spirit, would you make our hearts beat with love and affection for Christ and all that he offers? Would you protect us from settling for anything else? Would you make us new? By his power we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.